Hello, Freedom Fighters. Thank you for listening. This audio interview is brought to you by Open World Magazine, the ultimate guide for pursuing a life of adventure and passion and setting up a location-independent business that can support your dream lifestyle. Go check us out at openworldmag.com. Hello, so welcome to another episode of the Open World Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Flood, and I feel very excited and privileged for today's interview. I'm joined by my friend and fellow digital nomad, Taylor Pearson. We first met in Chiang Mai back in 2012 when Taylor was working as an apprentice for Tropical MBA. Now he's the number one best-selling author of End of Jobs, a fantastic book. And uh, in his words, it's a book that's not meant to scare, but to make you aware. He says that human labor is becoming more and more outdated and less valuable to market. Instead, Taylor argues that entrepreneurship is what the world needs, not just right now, but for the new age that's coming. So, Taylor, just want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm, uh, I'm honored and privileged to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. So um, maybe in your own words, you could just introduce yourself and how did you get started on the path to writing this book? Uh, So the book specifically started um, in October of 2014, so about 10 months before um, this recording. I was at a conference um, in Bangkok, Thailand uh, at the, the Dynamite conference um, and was talking with um, Dan Andrews, who runs Tropical MBA and who you mentioned I, I worked with as an apprentice for a couple of years. Um, and we were kind of talking about like what is going on and we were reflecting on, um, you know, there's all these entrepreneurs that are running companies or working in entrepreneurial positions in um, small businesses and startups and they're traveling and they have a lot of freedom and opportunity and we're like laughing about this idea of shiny object syndrome that one of everyone's biggest problems was they saw so many opportunities that it was distracting them from focusing on the most important ones uh, and then kind of comparing that and contrasting it with friends we knew from high school and college who were in jobs um, back in the U.S. where they weren't really enjoying the day-to-day work, the company they didn't feel creating a lot of value um, either in their lives or in the marketplace. Um, And they were working very, very hard just kind of in order to to keep up up and maintain um, what they saw as like the standard of living they they need to have. Um, And we were just like, why is this possible? Like what is – what is the difference between these two individuals? You know, it's not, one is not working 10 times harder than the other. And yet the outcomes are kind of this factor of 10 difference. Um, And so that was the genesis of the book explaining, you know, the mindset and the macroeconomic situation and everything going on right now um, as to how those two paths are different and how you can choose to join um, and be a part of kind of this entrepreneurial path. Okay, so what is the critical trait that separates uh, your peers back home who are working uh, normal jobs versus these uh, successful digital nomads? Because you mentioned that uh, they're working just as hard. Uh, they have the same education levels. What's, what's the critical trait? Is it a character trait? So what I argue is that it's a life choice, which is it's a choice to pursue a more entrepreneurial career. Um, and so the framework I kind of couch this in is if you look at 
how work has changed over time. Um, it's gone from simple to complicated to complex. And so what I mean by that is uh, simple is like a, an ABC follow the list test. So like putting together, excuse me, putting together an IKEA table, um, which is kind of the way most factory or agricultural work would be, right? It's like you can list the steps, one, two, three, and this was how work was was for much of modern Western history. Um, and then during the 20th century, went through the, like, the knowledge revolution, right? So all of a sudden, work went from simple to complicated. Um, and the way to get trained from that work went from just, like, going into the field to um, going to university, getting credentialed and understanding kind of the, the basics of um, a field or the, the fundamental principles of a field. And that got you 80% of the way there. And then maybe over your career, you did a little continuing education. But for the most part, um, your degree kind of taught you the, the core essence of your field, whether that was you know, law or finance or whatever it was. Um, and that's the paradigm most people are stuck in. That's the paradigm I think um, a lot of friends from college and high school are stuck in. Um, and what I argue is that we've moved into this new paradigm of complex work, um, where it can't be effectively credentialed, where the nature of work is that, um, you have to probe for new opportunities, you have to sense kind of how those opportunities respond, um, and then try over and over. So it's just like much more entrepreneurial. I can't get credentialed. Um, I got to kind of figure it out on my own path. And it was people that had chosen to walk that path that, uh, were being more successful and, and getting better results given the effort they were exerting. So you, you mentioned this uh, Kinefin framework, and the, the four domains are uh, simple work, complicated, complex, and chaotic work. Um, I don't want to go too much into that, but uh, you mentioned that we're entering the domain of, of complex work, and I think part of it is this kind of embracing that feeling of uncertainty because there is no blueprint. So it's, it's kind of like really being tolerant to risk, I think, because... Um, there was one quote in, in the book that, that, uh, that you, you wrote that I really liked, and it was, um, I think it was like, entrepreneurs must act in spite of the, dis the disorder to develop ways to survive. And uh, you mentioned, uh, I think, Ben Horowitz, and when he was trying to raise capital after the dot-com crash, you know, you said that there's no blueprint for that. Uh, would, you, would you say that that's kind of correct? Is it kind of building your tolerance to risk and, and your ability to take risks? Yeah, I, I think that's a good way of articulating, accepting that the game has changed. You know, another mm -hmm. analogy I've heard that I like is um, comp chess is complicated, which is to say it's um, you, you have to learn a lot about chess to be good at chess, right? But at the fundamental level, you could break chess in, down into like a very, very complex if-then framework, which is exactly what um, you know, chess computers do. So that's kind of that's a kind of a su supreme complicated notion. But you know, the complex variation of that would be like imagine you were playing chess, and each of the chess pieces had their own intelligence, and they could move whenever they wanted to. Um, like you can't, no matter how hard you think about that on the front end, um, you're not going to be able to figure it out, right? You just have to get in the game and adjust as things go. Right, and, and so also we're not only competing with um, other people in labor market, we're also com competing with computers, you know, which are becoming more and more intelligent than we are. Like even, even if you become a chess master, you're still only as good as um, the computer, which has perfected this program, right? Uh, right. Yeah. And regarding the, the chess metaphor. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, because the two things I talk about in the book are um, the competition for this kind of complicated work is um, increases in globalization. So, like, look at communication technology that people 20 years ago were using scratch off phone cards to call overseas. And now, you know, you're in Bangkok and I'm in Austin, Texas, and we're talking for free over Skype and we're recording the call with $20 software. So, like, massive increases in communication technology and then also. So global education standards. So there's um, better trained, better credentialed individuals, and it's easier to reach them. And then, as you said, software and machines um, are also coming in from, you know, startups and like the the general rise of like Moore's law, um, machines getting better and better, faster and faster. Yeah. And you also mentioned in the book that credentials are becoming more trivial. All around me, I see people I know, whether it's, uh, people I went to school with, former teachers, my ex-girlfriend, they're all going back to school for their master's degrees, more education. Uh, but you argue that going down this path is, is kind of like being a turkey being fattened up for Thanksgiving. Turkey's life seems wonderful until the, the day before Thanksgiving when the butcher's axe falls. Can you expand on that concept a little more? Well, I think uh, it's certainly situation dependent. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, um, one guy that read the book was a rocket scientist, and he basically said there's no shortage of demand for rocket scientists. And, uh, you know, that, I think that's fair. So certainly there are industries where um, credentials are still valuable, but they're becoming less valuable in every industry, and I think they've crossed a threshold. Um, so a lot of these people that I see going back for degrees, like you mentioned, are going back, back for um, like law degrees, which there's this abundance of lawyers in the United States um, there's a shortage of job opportunities, and so um, they've, they've put themselves oftentimes in a situation where um, it's going to be very difficult to get a job, um, and if they do get that job, um, they are not going to be well-positioned for kind of how the future of the labor market is changing. The, you know, the turkey analogy is this idea. I use the example of accountants in the book, um, that if you're an accountant and um, there is a outsource company overseas or there is software which can take over um, your role or some of the roles you're providing in the company, um, you can get in a situation where maybe you're 10, 15, 20 years into your career, uh, you have a skill set um, and you have a professional network which is based around uh, this certain type of accounting work you do that has been replaced either by um, overseas, uh, an overseas company which can do work for um, just a lower cost basis because of cost of living or by software. And now all of a sudden, um, you've got a really large potential downside. You know, maybe you have children and a mortgage um, and kind of all this financial overhead. Um, and the skill set you've based your career around has suddenly become obsolete. You know, so what do you do then? So I and I'm you know, kind of making this argument that if you step into the entrepreneurial paradigm sooner and start pursuing a more entrepreneurial path, um, you can avoid that scenario. And, and also what you, you mentioned in the book is this uh, stoicist f- uh, philosophy where, um, and, I, and I kind of have a similar mindset where um, you say that even failure is good. So if you take a risk in entrepreneurship and um, even if you don't make a lot of money at first, you're continually learning. Uh, can, can you expand more on some of your uh, stoicist concepts and, and how they can aid uh, would-be entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think the way I've been I've been thinking about it um, or have over the last few years is um, to just get very clearly defined about what the risks are and what the implications are. So 
Um, for example, um, one of the kind of practices in Stoicism is this idea of negative visualizations that you imagine the worst possible outcome and that if you will clearly define that outcome, it's often um, not as bad as you you would think. So, you know, I call it the mom's couch downside, right? That like the worst case scenario is you end up back on your parents' couch. Um, but I think the other aspect that's important is just uh, being really careful about the words you use. Um, so, for example, if you know if someone has, if you have a friend, they have a job, and somehow they get laid off, um, that's considered unlucky. Uh, if you have a friend who starts a business and the business failed. Um, that's considered they took a risk um, and it didn't pay off. Um, and and that's, you know, what you're doing is you're playing with semantics that in both cases um, the person took a risk, they took a calculated risk, and it, it did or didn't work. Um, and, you know, my argument is pursuing that more entrepreneurial path, whether that's starting a business or going to work in an entrepreneurial company in sort of an apprentice-type role, Um you can learn a lot more from that and the, the long-term trajectory, the long-term opportunity, if you like get some skill sets and you get a relationship with other entrepreneurs, you're going to be much better off um, than going into a corporate environment where you're not learning and growing um, and becoming more entrepreneurial. Taylor, tell me a story about, uh, tell me a time when you had a failure in your entrepreneurial career. Uh, what was it like? What did you go through and, and how did you deal with it? Um, <laughs> a bit of a curveball there. Um, yeah, so but, but I, w- I want to get a personal account here so that the the listener can relate to it a little bit. Yeah, I, the, I guess the first thing that popped to mind. Um, I spent about uh, maybe nine months working on a software startup in the uh, Valley parking industry, um, and. Basically, what happened, I was working um, with the guys at Tropical NBA. They had a company in the Valley Park industry selling physical products, and we decided we would um, uh, put together a software company. So we thought, the logic was, you know, we're already selling these guys physical products. Um, why not just make another product and sell them to our existing customers? Um, so that was what we did. We partnered with a guy based out of Vietnam to uh, build a software application. Um, and spent about three or four months building it, um, took it to the market, uh, realized uh, basically we had kind of started from the scratch with building it and didn't understand the industry very well. So we kind of started from scratch again, started rebuilding it, uh, got another version out, which took about another three months. Um, and at the end of that three months, basically realized that our, our kind of key competitive advantage, which was the customer list, um, was actually totally useless. Uh, so... We'd assume because you know we have thousands of these guys on our customer list, and you know you can't download that database that doesn't exist anywhere else. We can get to the market. We can get um, you know even with the same product from a competitor, we could add, we can be much more profitable. We could reach a much larger market. And it turned out that the nature of parking software for the valet industry is um, primarily the value is revenue control. So like valets will steal. Um, a- certain percentage of the revenue and if you can accept credit cards and you can do a few other things with the software you can cut down that percentage um so what you can do is you can save each valley parking location a percentage of um the revenues and what that means is if 
location isn't doing enough revenue to justify the cost of an iPad and paying for the software, um, they're actually better off just letting the valet attendants go on stealing. So if they're not, you know, it's going to cost you 2000 bucks in soft and um, hardware and, you know, a few hundred bucks in software each month. And you're making less than that in, um, in total revenue. It doesn't, that, that that percentage doesn't cover your um, doesn't the math doesn't add up. You just let the guys go around stealing, uh, and the implications of that were basically that our customer list of thousands of people all of a sudden went down to about um, you know twenty to fifty enterprise clients, uh, which all the competitors already had access to. So instead of kind of this fresh market we thought we were going to be able to tap into, we were doing enterprise sales um, against already established competitors with at that time a better product. Um, so basically nine months in realized we invested all this time and money and, um, the project was, uh, it didn't have a future. So we ended up shutting it down. Mm. Um, and that was a hidden risk that you, you couldn't, you couldn't exactly plan for in advance. Would you say, was it a hidden risk? I think we could have gone to market a lot faster. Like mm. I think the big, we, we took three months to get to market with any product at all. Um, and then I think, you know, to get specific to software, there's a real danger in having too many development resources. Um, I think it would, because we had this developer and we had to have him working, he was always building something. And I think in a lot of cases, it would have been better if we'd just done, like we could have done mock-ups of a product, like screen flow mock-ups using, um, I can't remember what the software, there's like, you know, you can buy a $20 subscription to something online and you can do screen flow mock-ups and like make interactive buttons that link to other slides, like a interactive PowerPoint. Like we could have put something together like that in, you know, less than a month for, uh, you know, $1,000, $2,000 tops um, and like taking that out to our customer base. And so I think we could have figured all that stuff out um, much faster, much cheaper. Okay, so the game doesn't really begin until you interact with the market and get in front of the customers. So don't invest too much until you get feedback from the market or, or kind of learn what's involved? Yeah, I think accelerate speed to market. Um, you know, I, try to think, I think it's the patent quote, like, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. The same seems to be true of products. You know, no product survives first contact marketplace. Excellent, excellent. Um, I, I think that most most new entrepreneurs do it the wrong way. You know, they, they get married to an idea and then they spend a lot of time building it up and then, you know, they, they finally release it and then, you know, they can't get customers or they don't know how to get customers. Um, you, you mentioned correctly that sales and, and marketing is the most important aspect, uh, the most important area of being an entrepreneur and, and, and lack of sales and marketing is why many businesses fail. So can you give me some of your, uh, maybe your one or two best tactics for, for early customer acquisition? Um, yeah, I think the biggest thing I do in the early stages of a business is I try to go in person. So I would say if I can close my first 10 customers in person, even if it's for, um, you know, I don't know, a hundred dollar product, it's something very, very inexpensive. Um, you can gauge that feedback much, much better when you can kind of like see their body language and see all that context. Um, so like big inflection points for me have come when, um, I've been able to do sales off the bat in person. And I think it also kind of trickles into the marketing because you have a very clear customer avatar for, um, who it is you're marketing to. So I think, um, you know, yeah, get something put together very quickly, very cheaply. And then, um, you know, email five or 10 people and 
buy them a coffee or buy them lunch or whatever and pitch them the idea and um, see how they react. So it's, it's kind of like that uh, just get your product up over the weekend and just kind of test the idea before you kind of build out the website, the ebooks, the autoresponder, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think the, the sooner you can get to market, the better. Okay, fantastic. Um, all right, I have a few more questions for you here. Uh, in, in the book, you, you mentioned this concept where you say, um, investors say that the money is made on the buy. And your case that you make is that you should invest early in entrepreneurship. Uh, what is that investment? What form does it take? How do we invest in entrepreneurship now? And um, Well, I'll, I'll let you take it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we invest, or the way I see people investing in entrepreneurship and the way I've chosen to invest in it is through the career path I've taken um, and through the way I think about opportunity. So to be more specific about that, I tend to value um, in the short term learning over cash flow, um, and I tend to value um, entrepreneurial relationships um, over perhaps like traditional corporate relationships. So you know what that means, and the way I see that usually play out is people that go into apprenticeship positions, which is what I did. I went and worked for a uh, high growth small business. Um, and did that for two years as a way to kind of learn what, what does it look like to be on the inside of a um, fast growth small business? Like, what do you do day to day? How do you hire people? How do you scale? Uh, what does that environment feel like? So, you know, instead of maybe going to a position um, where you know, I, I, I pick on like Procter & Gamble and like Ernst & Young, and Ernst & Young is my favorite because I, I like to pick on Ernst & Young, which is a big note for accounting firm, um, there's just not a lot of upward mobility at Ernst & Young, right? You can, like, move up the Ernst & Young ladder, but you're not learning a lot, um, and you're not growing a lot, whereas these kind of apprenticeship positions offer that learning and growth. Um, and the other way I see this happen is uh, through the stair step, which is to say people that start with um, relatively small projects or relatively small products um, and release those kind of gradually stair-stepping their way up. So I give the example in the book of Rob Walling, who is a, an entrepreneur that has a podcast called Charge for the Rest of Us, which is excellent, actually. Um, and his kind of career trajectory was um, he left his corporate job and started doing consulting and then started launching small prod uh, products to get his way out of consulting. So uh, he launched an ebook for, I think it was actually building duck boats, like duck hunter boats, um, and then uh, an electrician job board in his city. Um, so all these like very non-competitive markets where he could like make a little money and learn about customer service and managing um, virtual assistants and acquiring customers um, and sort of like build up these cash flows around um, projects, kind of stair-stepping his way up into bigger products. So eventually he purchased and grew a, an SEO tool um, and then he's now working on a um, SaaS app for email marketing. Okay, fantastic. Um, you mentioned that uh, you started out not valuing, you valued learning over, over cash flow. Um, can I ask you, like, when and how do you make that transition from uh, not valuing cash flow to really earning uh, serious money as an entrepreneur? Because I know there's a lot of, like, um, 
affiliate marketers and, and entrepreneurs who, who are making only maybe making only like uh, $1,000 per month, you know, it's something very small. And they, they feel kind of like they're stuck, like, when am I going to make serious money? And I know there's like a ton of graphic designers out there who are willing to take on any project. Um, you know, maybe they value learning over cash flow, but they're, they're working with really low quality clients. Um, how can you step up your game after that point and um, make that, that leap to, to becoming one of the success stories that you mentioned in your book? I guess I view those two, two situations a little differently. I think um, at least a lot of the affiliate markers I see often, it feels like they're kind of prior, prioritizing cash flow over learning in a lot of um, in a lot of ways, and if they would flip the script, they could probably get to cash flow faster. Um, so, you know, could you go? Um, I guess I, to be honest, I'm just like not a huge fan of affiliate marketing. I don't really understand the ecosystem um, to see how it, it scales super effectively. At least for people getting in the game now, I think people that got in the game 15 years ago have done very well with it. Um, a lot of people that I've seen start as affiliate marketers and kind of become success stories. And I guess, I, to be honest, I started as an affiliate marketer. Um, and, yes, could never really get into um, serious cash. And the way I solved that problem was um, I went and got an apprenticeship. So I, I think I, I went and looked at a more um, complex business than affiliate marketing, something with a higher barrier to entry and, like, how do I – how do I get into that kind of business? If, if, I, can add, um, if I can add to that, that question, um, I, I use affiliate marketing example, but I think it's true in any, any industry, any niche, um, in any trade, basically. So you have authors, for example. Um, maybe you know, 5 to 10% of authors become bestsellers while uh, 85 to 90% of them struggle. Or, or graphic design, for example, or affiliate marketing. You know, maybe like 10% are doing really well and the other 90% are struggling. Yeah, I guess, to be honest, my first reaction is I'm not sure how good of a person I am to ask this question. I'm not (laughs) sure I've made that transition personally. Um, I I think I probably still prioritize learning over cash flow. And if you looked at my my cash flow, I don't think anyone would be blown out of their minds. Um, Mm. But it it seems like the people that do it successfully tend to move up the value chain and who they're able to serve. So I guess the, the example that comes to mind for me is um, John McIntyre, who's, uh, I think, a mutual friend of ours who does um, conversion consulting. And what he was able to do was go from serving um, clients that were doing, you know, I'm making these numbers up, but relatively speaking, like a low six-figure business where he could help them increase conversions 2% to a $10 million business, where he could help them increase conversions 2% and providing kind of the same value there. Um, but he can he can value base price that to a much higher higher level on the larger client because obviously their two percent out of ten million is much bigger than two percent of a hundred thousand, um, and that he was able to do that by proving himself with smaller clients and then slowly through referrals and cold outreach and um, for him a podcast doing marketing move his way up into larger clients. I see. So moving up the value chain or just becoming more valuable yourself, right? Because um, I remember um, I heard about uh, there's a freelancer, Daniel DiPiazza, and um, he calls it the marsupial method where he went from, he says, $18 per hour to $1,000 per hour. And it's just about becoming so valuable, being indispensable. 
Yeah, I certainly think if you can carve out a specific, uh, super specific niche, that does mean the people that are most effective, right? You're like the Magento plugin marketing expert. Uh, no one's better at Magento plugin marketing than you. Um, those guys seem to do very well because there's simply uh, there's no competition and there's a lot of demand. I don't know if that's the market, but something to that level of specificity. Fantastic. So if you can be like the number one uh, in a very specific niche, then that's that's kind of the key to power there. Yeah, you can certainly justify you can certainly justify higher prices because you have a, a specialized level of knowledge that someone else does, as opposed to like a general marketing consultant. Excellent. Uh, so before the call, we were we were talking about agency, and um, I asked you this question um, that you say it's not about like we like governments and societies trying to solve problems. It's it's about the individual, and the individual is empowered. And and I asked you uh, if we're kind of entering this Atlas Shrug scenario where uh, the entrepreneurs, the exceptional, thrive, and the majority kind of get left behind. And um, you kind of said that that's kind of maybe the wrong question. Uh, can, can you expand on that a little bit more? What we were talking about uh, before and this this concept of agency. Yeah, so I'm um, I'm recording the audiobook version of the book right now, and I've been listening to audiobooks and stumbled back across a book I listened to a couple of years ago, which is the Collected Works of Management from Peter Drucker. And one of the things he recognized much sooner than I did was this idea that what has happened over the last um, you know, 50 or 80 years is that the tools of production have shifted. So if you were a um, middle manager in the Ford Motor Company in the 1940s from the 1950s, you needed the Ford Motor Company to produce value in the marketplace. You needed access to their factories and their production tools um, and all the resources they had. If you struck out on your own, you would have had to you know, go buy a factory and raise all those resources yourself, whereas that is no longer the case, right? If you were a graphic designer at the Ford Motor Company today, um, you can take your skill and you can go, you can approach, you can leave Ford and you can put up a website and say, I do um, branding and logo design for people in the automobile industry. And um, you don't need Ford in order to create value in the marketplace that all of a sudden this agency has switched from the corporation to the individual. Um, But this hasn't really carried over to the way we think about problems. I think there's a, a tendency, this is kind of my recent vendetta, um, we, we ask questions, and I'm just as guilty of this as anyone else, like what should we do about um, X? Like what should we do about um, this like death of the middle class or this dying of the middle class? And, and I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, what I do know is that the tools of production that you as an individual and I as an individual and anyone listening individual has the opportunity to um, exit up out of the middle class. Um, And I think that's the opportunity that I'm excited about. And that's the opportunity I want to, um, to kind of spread around that. I don't know what we should do as a society and I'm not terribly bullish about the ability of governments or larger institutions to, to do something, but I am very optimistic about, the opportunity that we as individuals have to um, exert our agency, right? To be agents in, in the sense that we have access to the tools and the means of production um, and to use those, um, to use those to get what we want to um, kind of create these lives we want for ourselves. 
So I take it that you're very selective on your information intake. Uh, I am quite selective, yes. <laughs> so you don't you don't uh, follow the news or, or read the newspaper? Uh, no, I don't. No, I, I think that's pretty common of, of entrepreneurial people, like uh, people who look for opportunity and are optimistic about the future, because um, the vast majority of what you see in the news is just you know doomsday scenario, uh, perpetuating negativity. Uh, I think that's probably a big part of the problem. Yeah, there's certainly a big disconnect between what's profitable for CNN and what's helpful for individuals. Very interesting. Um, all right, so I, I want to ask you um, about about your book. Uh, it's it's still uh, is it still the number one bestseller spot right now? It's, it's been doing really well. Uh, it, in entrepreneurship, yes, it is. So it's it is still doing well. That's fantastic. So let me ask you because we have a lot of um, you know, self-published authors who listen to this podcast. Uh, what really worked uh, for getting your book to that number one bestseller spot? Uh, tell me about some of the results since you wrote it, and uh, what was what was your launch strategy like? Um, so, in terms of results, um, I did a free giveaways for four days, so it was downloaded five thousand times for free, and then in the first month, it was paid. Uh, it sold five thousand copies. Um, and it, it was out just over a month ago, so those numbers are, are fairly recent. Um, in terms of my launch strategy, my my main launch strategy was I did the free giveaway. Um, and I did that primarily because um, I wanted to capitalize on the brand equity I had built up in a more useful way than giving $9.99 or $2.99 or whatever from my audience um, and from people that were invested in the ideas and the premise of the book. So I wanted to use that brand equity to get them to um, post about it on forums um, or to share it or to write a review. Um, and then the free giveaway also made it much easier for me to reach out to um, higher-level influencers. So people like you know um, James Altucher, people I couldn't have reached out to otherwise, I was able to reach out to because saying, hey, um, here's a free book. I think you and your audience might enjoy it. Um, they don't have to burn any of their personal brand equity recommending a free book, right? If someone downloads a free book and they don't like it, you know, it's just, well, you can't really complain. Um, so that was kind of the, the crux of it, and that got it up to number one in the paid list. Uh, and then when it flipped over to, or excuse me, unpaid, when it flipped over to paid, um, it took two or three days, but then eventually climbed to the top of the, the business section um, in paid uh, uh, and ha- has more or less stayed there since. So getting uh, featured on James's uh, show was a big part of that. Yes, it was. I, I about a week after the book came out, um, I had reached out to him and he emailed me back, um, and we did a podcast together. So that was definitely a big bump for me. Oh, that's fantastic! And and James is kind of dominating the uh, charts in his own way with his books. I've noticed. He is. Uh, yeah. Two or three of his books are, are up there towards the top. Well, uh, what's next for you, Taylor, after you've finished this book and uh, it's been a big project? Uh, that's a great question. I'm, I'm trying to figure out the answer to that one myself. Um, so so far, the book has done uh, quite well, much better than I expected. So as long as that continues to be the case, I'm kind of making it my, my full-time or close-to-full-time project. 
Um, and then just waiting to see to see what comes of it, what opportunities come up, and and go from there. So nothing definite right now. Is there anything that you would have done differently if uh, if you were to republish this book or rewrite this book? Um, I certainly would have liked to have, have there be less typos in the first version. But the first <laughs> version, I I basically said I'm I set this hard deadline. I had this at the end of Q1 of 2015. I sat down. I was like, I'm you know. I'm not entering Q3 without publishing this book. Like I will publish it, uh, come hell or high water. Um, and so I basically just pushed it out the door on June 29th. Um, so I don't, I don't regret that. I think I going back to what we were talking about earlier, it's better to get to market sooner than later. Um, if I'd known how many people were going to download it, I might not have done that. Uh, but I think it's probably a good. I did. Um, I think other things, uh, as I'm like going back and recording the audiobook, things that I'm, trying to communicate better. Um, one is this idea of agency that we talked about. Um, I'm really trying to drive that point home. Um, I think that's kind of the central premise of the book in a lot of ways, that agency has shifted from institutions to individuals. Um, and then I think the other thing is um, defining jobs and entrepreneurship clearly. So I think there's at best a loose correlation between um, owning an LLC or a, a firm, if you're not based in the U.S., and being an entrepreneur, that there's people in um, small businesses and startups and companies that are entrepreneurial, and there are people that own LLCs that are not very entrepreneurial, and that it's much more um, a mindset and an approach to to business and to life, um, and that cultivating that is much more valuable than you know setting up your LLC or or whatever. Well, Taylor, thank you so much for your time during this interview, and congratulations with your success uh, with this book. Everyone go check it out on Amazon. It's the end of Jobs, and this is Taylor Pearson. If someone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, so my email is taylor at taylorpearsonme, M-E, and then um, my Twitter is uh, taylorpearsonme again. And, uh, yeah, please get in touch. Thank you very much for having me on the show, and thank you, everyone, for listening. And you also have a, a page with uh, some free resources, correct? Uh, what's, what's that page? Yeah, so if you go to taylorpearson.me slash EOJ, as in end of jobs, um, there's a free chapter of the book um, as well as some of the resources I talk about in the book. So um, a 90-day planning template, um, access to a community um, that is based around the book and kind of taking the next step with that um also some of the interviews i recorded um and a few other a few other freebies and resources i wanted to include for people excellent so we'll put a link to that in the show notes taylorpearson.me forward slash eoj thank you again taylor it's it was great to have you here thank you very much